Father, as we come to your word right now, we're going to see something that is impossible to do apart from your help. Father, something that is impossible for us to do in our own strength, in our own flesh, apart from the power of your Holy Spirit, apart from your presence in our lives, apart from the perfection of Jesus, we can't do on our own what we're about to see here. And so, Father, we come to you to express our need for you, to express our dependency on you, and to express our desperation for you because we can't do this. We thank you for the perfect example of your son, Jesus Christ, who did for us perfectly what we could never hope to do for ourselves. And so we ask, Father, that in light of his example, out of the overflow of a heart that has been transformed by the gospel, by the power and the leading and the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, help us to do the impossible by your strength today. Father, we come to your word. We want to see your son, Jesus. Will you show him to us this morning and what it means to walk in his way? So Father, will you speak through me a word that will edify your church, words that will glorify your name. Father, our request is simple, that you would sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth, and we submit ourselves to it now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible, Matthew 5, 38, if you're not there already. And uh, if you're our guest, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor, and we're honored to have you worshiping here with us this morning. And what we've been doing as a church family for the last few months is we have been walking verse by verse uh, through Matthew chapters five through seven, what's more famously known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. So for nearly three months now, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we're coming down to the last couple sections of chapter five. First week of this study, we looked at how the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's radical confrontation with a wildly disoriented world. So the summary on the Sermon on the Mount is pretty simple. We, we've spent a few months here already, probably six months in total by the time that we're finished. But to summarize the Sermon on the Mount in one sentence, it's really pretty easy. Jesus calls us to live lives that are radically different from the rest of the world. Whenever uh, the world sees followers of Jesus Christ, they should see something that looks different. Our lives should look so radically different from the rest of the world that someone uh, should be, have the same response as if they walked through the front door of our house and saw us walking upside down on the ceiling. Everything about our lives is supposed to be different. When people see us, they should see Jesus. So walking the Jesus way is walking in a way that doesn't look natural to the rest of the world because everything that Jesus calls us to do in the Sermon on the Mount totally contradicts what comes naturally to us because of sin. I showed you this in week one, and I wanna go back to this again this morning because the further we get into Matthew 5 through 7, I think the easier it is for us to forget this foundation. But week one, this is what we saw, that the key to the Sermon on the Mount isn't actually in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, it's in Matthew 4, 17. As Jesus began his earthly ministry, as he inaugurates his earthly ministry, this was the foundation of everything that Jesus preached everywhere he went, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And this is a key verse for us to understand. Nate said this in his scripture reading earlier. I, I prayed this just a few moments ago. It's important for us to understand the type of life Jesus describes in Matthew 5 through 7 isn't just difficult, church. It's impossible. We cannot do the things that are in this chapter apart from a heart that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can do everything that you possibly can in your own strength to keep up with the Sermon on the Mount, but unless your heart has been transformed by the gospel, unless you've repented of your sins and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, you'll never be able to do what he calls us to do in these verses, and I think that's especially true in what we're gonna see today. If you were to ask the question, what is a Christian, I would just take you to the Sermon on the Mount. I'd take you to Matthew chapters five through seven because what we find in these chapters is the natural overflow of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. So if you were to uh, ask the question, what does it look like to be a Christian, then we would just go to the Sermon on the Mount and the way that we can know that our hearts have been truly transformed by the gospel is that we're living the Sermon on the Mount. And we've seen this to be especially true over the last few weeks, how Christians are called in every single way to be different. As we've looked at all these statements of Jesus, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. So over the last few weeks, we've seen as Christians, we have different attitudes and actions when it comes to anger and hatred. We've seen that we have different attitudes about sex and marriage. We have different attitudes about divorce and commitment. And as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, we have different attitudes about retaliation and even the treatment of our enemies. Everything in our lives as followers of Jesus should look radically different from the rest of the world, as we'll see this today, even in the way that we fight. So what we're going to do in this section, in the last section of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to do a part one, part two. We're going to see a picture of how to fight like Jesus. Even the way we are called to fight looks different from the rest of the world. And that's what Jesus begins to show us in these verses today. So what we're going to see, Matthew 5, 38, is that Jesus calls us to fight evil with good by surrendering our rights. Let's just hang on to that for just a second. By surrendering our rights and refusing to seek vengeance. What Jesus is gonna call us to do in these verses and the next verses, church, if I'm gonna be honest with you, I think this is the most difficult part of the Sermon on the Mount. To quote Robert Frost, two roads are diverging in the woods here. And when we get to the end of chapter five, this is where we as followers of Jesus, like the rubber is really gonna start meeting the road. Am I going to walk the way of Jesus or am I gonna go the way of the rest of the world? The, the end of chapter five is really the climax of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's also the most challenging part of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the part that we get to where, man, we could be checking every other box up to this point, but many come to this place and say, this is just too much. This is the fork in the road on the Jesus way, and the way we respond to the words of Jesus is gonna reveal which way we're walking. So for Matthew five, uh, let's read again verse 38, just to set the context for what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, you have heard it was said, so we've seen this for several weeks now, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now the concept of an eye for an eye is a quotation of the Old Testament law from Exodus chapter 21, and it has deep roots in ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, the famous legal term that's been drawn from this concept is lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. Outside of the Old Testament law, you can also find this cited in the Code of Hammurabi. And the intent of the law was to instill a system of just retribution. So if you committed an offense that caused someone to lose an eye, then the return would be that you lost an eye. 
if you committed an offense that caused someone to break their arm, in return, your arm would be broken. Or if you knocked out someone's tooth because you punched them, you were going to have a tooth knocked out in return. And, and this law, it's important for us to understand this, it, it really had a twofold purpose. I put this in your notes this morning. The twofold purpose of an eye for an eye was to provide a fair and just principle for punishing offenses. So to make sure basically the punishment fit the crime. The second piece of this was preventing vengeful punishments that didn't fit the crime. And so it was about a system of just and fair retribution and return for some sort of evil that you might have caused to someone else, but was also to put limits on this to make sure what you received in return wasn't a punishment that didn't fit the crime. So the purpose of the law was to make sure that there was just retribution, but it was also there as a protection to make, things that, make sure things didn't go too far. So again, if you broke someone's arm, what this law was protecting was uh, uh, you from was a mob showing up to your house. You'd broken someone's arm. A group of people can't show up and cut out your tongue or cut off your head. It was to make sure that even as you committed an offense, that the punishment uh, matched the crime that was committed. And so there's a key distinction that we need to be able to make because this is what had been corrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees. Key distinction in an eye for an eye. This was a system of just retribution, not a system of sinful retaliation. That's the key distinguishing mark that we need to make here. This was not a system for sinful retaliation. This was a system for just retribution. So here's the way the scribes and the Pharisees had abused this law. They took this law to mean that, that they uh, basically was supposed to serve as a foundation for the legal system, but they were using it as an excuse to seek vengeance in their everyday relationships. So this is the way the scribes and the Pharisees would teach this. They would say, hey, if someone insults you, you can insult them in return. Someone breaks your arm, you can break their arm in return. Someone withholds kindness from you, you can withhold kindness from them in return. And all along the way, they would quote the scripture. Hey, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That, that's what they would hide behind. What they're essentially saying is, listen, that's the treatment you gave me. I'm just showing you the treatment that you showed me. I'm giving that in return. And so that's what was being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. It was a total misinterpretation because just in the same way the law says an eye for an eye in Exodus 21, the law was equally clear that God's people are not to seek revenge. This is what we also find in the Old Testament law from Leviticus 19:18. The Lord says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In their misapplication of the law, they had become guilty of committing the very sins that had been committed against them. And so Jesus corrects their faulty thinking. He goes on to say in verse 39, but I say to you, so you've heard the popular teaching of the day, you've heard the interpretation and the application of the scribes and Pharisees, you've heard it was said, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So how do we fight like Jesus? Four truths that we're gonna see from this passage this morning. The first way to fight like Jesus is to turn the other cheek. We fight like Jesus by turning the other cheek. Verse 39, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The word Jesus uses here for resist really just means to oppose or retaliate against. What Jesus is saying here is pretty simple. He says, you don't retaliate against an evil person with more evil. You don't respond to sin committed against you with sin committed against someone else. It was true in the first century Jewish culture, and it's true for us today, that, that a backhanded slap across the face, it wasn't just a, an act of physical aggression, it was also an act of humiliating disrespect. 
It's not so much about the injury as much as it is about the insult when someone slaps you across the face. And so it was the ultimate insult. It would have brought shame upon the person who received the abuse. Now, to be clear here about this passage this morning, uh, this is not in this passage saying that Christians can't use self-defense. This is not a passage saying that Christians cannot jump in and help someone who's being assaulted. This is not a passage saying uh, that Christians cannot serve in the military. There have been uh, some through history, Gandhi, Tolstoy, and others who have taken this to the opposite extreme and and gone complete uh, non-retaliation whatsoever. The context here is that Jesus is addressing the way we retaliate with others relationally. He's talking about in the context of our everyday relationships, calling us to not retaliate when we've been sinned against. Again, the mentality of the Pharisees was, if you receive an insult like this, you have permission to return the insult and retaliate in the same way. But Jesus says something that would have stunned every single person on the mountainside that day. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, you should offer up the other side of your face as well. Someone insults you, expect another one. Someone gossips about you, you ignore it. If someone unfairly criticizes you, you receive it and you move on. Now, this is a really, really difficult saying for us to receive, I think, in our 21st century context, because I think we're being completely honest. In our, our culture today, we tend to be a very emotionally fragile, oversensitive people who, who are hypersensitive to even the perception of somebody giving us pushback. Like, like in our culture today, you can ask a question the wrong way and somebody be like, whoa, what's the issue here? I mean, like, we are just so quick to, like, rise up to defend ourselves. Does this person have something that's against me? And so it's hard to find good modern-day examples of people who just receive this and model this well. Uh, John Piper has, has shared, though, a really great history of the 18th century pastor Charles Simeon. If you've never studied the life of Charles Simeon, I would encourage you just to to research his biography today because few people, I believe, in church history have better embodied what Jesus teaches here than Simeon. Uh, Charles Simeon was an 18th century minister who became the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge when he was only 23 years old. And throughout his pastoral tenure, he endured relentless hostile criticism from the day he started. Um, The bishop had appointed uh, him as pastor of the church rather than the preferred candidate, Mr. Hammond, that the rest of the congregation wanted. So while the bishop had the authority to appoint him as the pastor of the church who would preach on Sunday morning, the congregation had the authority to determine who would preach the afternoon service on Sundays. So for the first 12 years of his pastoral tenure, the congregation would not let him preach the afternoon service. 12 years. And just to add insult to this, they had Mr. Hammond, the person they wanted to be their pastor, he was the one that preached on Sunday afternoons. Now, uh, the bishop appointed him to preach on Sunday mornings, but another challenge, even with Sunday morning, when he did preach, was uh, that, that the congregation actually owned the church pews. Now, some of you have probably seen this in like an old historic church building. Have you seen the pews with the doors that you can actually open and close? Anybody seen this picture before? It's kind of, kind of an old thing. Uh, but, but in this context, the congregation actually owned their own pews. They had their own keys to the door. So what they would do on Sunday morning is show up and lock the doors to the pews so that no one had anywhere to sit when he was preaching. When they did this, the way Simeon responded was setting up chairs in the aisles at his own expense. When he set up the chairs, the congregation would throw them outside the church building. And he endured this for year after year after year after year. And this is something that absolutely fascinates me about his life. In 1792, he actually received a legal document that gave him permission to go into the congregation and tell them, you are not free to lock the doors of the pews. All he had to do was hold that up and say, you can't do this anymore. But instead of holding up that document and forcing his will on the congregation, he committed the whole situation to the Lord in prayer and continued to serve the people in humility. 
Charles Simeon served as the pastor at Trinity Church in Cambridge for 54 years. For 54 years. He faced pushback from students at the university. He faced pushback from colleagues and other professors. He had a congregation that for the first couple decades of his ministry absolutely hated him. Now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty closely connected to a lot of pastoral circles. And I can tell you in our 21st century sensibilities, most guys I know are putting up with that for about six months. And then they're moving on. And so we ask the question, man, what drives somebody to endure this? What drives someone? What motivates someone just to submit themselves to this time again and again and again? It's the same motivating force that should drive us today. And it's the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Centuries before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord spoke to the prophet Isaiah. Jesus fulfilled this ministry and he fulfilled this prophecy from Isaiah 50 verse 6. The prophet had said centuries before, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Church, we turn the other cheek when others sin against us because Christ turned the other cheek when we sinned against him. And one of the reasons why in today's climate I think Christians can be so overly sensitive to insult is because we lack the confidence of who we are in Jesus Christ. In our context today, man, what happens? Somebody insults us, attacks our character. What do we do? We want to snap right back in response. Somebody gossips about us to a group of friends. What do we do, man? We hop online and we put them on public blast and we feel perfectly justified in doing it, right? Well, I'm, hey, just giving you the same treatment you gave to me. Like just, just returning the favor to you. How does it feel, right? Like that, that's, we want people to feel the same pain and the frustration and suffering that we felt ourselves. This is the antithesis of the Jesus way. This is the opposite of who Jesus calls us to be, assassinating people's character behind their backs whenever they frustrated us. You wanna know how you can endure the rejection of man? You wanna know how you can persevere through the insults and the pushback and the disrespect of others? Friends, you have to know the acceptance of your heavenly father and you have to trust that justice and vengeance are in his hands. That's what it means to walk the way of Jesus Christ. It's to entrust judgment into the hands of the perfect judge. Verse 40, Jesus goes on to say, and if anyone would sue you, so he's not talking about a legitimate lawsuit that someone might have against you, some offense you've committed against them. He said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the second way we fight like Jesus is to do more than we're required. We turn the other cheek and we do more than we're required. During the first century culture, if someone didn't have the financial means to settle a lawsuit, the person seeking damage could literally sue them for the clothes off their back. Uh, the tunic was the inner garment and the cloak was the outer garment. And under the law, you could take the tunic, which was the inner garment, but you weren't allowed to take someone's cloak because it was a heavier garment that was considered essential for warmth and survival. And so this is the picture that Jesus is painting. By offering the cloak along with the tunic, what, what the person would have been demonstrating was a genuine desire to see the relationship be reconciled and for the name of the Lord to be honored. Jesus says, listen, someone's got a legitimate lawsuit against you. You owe them something, even if it requires taking the clothes off your back. He says, don't just give them your tunic. That's the requirement of the law. He says, be willing to go above the law and offer them your cloak as well. And this is what Jesus says you're doing in that moment. He says, what you're showing them is, listen, I'm so sorry for the offense that I have caused against you that I want to go above and beyond to reconcile this relationship and do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. That's easier said than done, right? Someone's taking legal action against you. And Jesus says, no, 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 
Don't just do the bare minimum that the law requires. Be willing to go above and beyond. I think a simple example of this is you know, sometimes we'll go to, to a restaurant and, and we'll have a bad experience. I'm sure I'm the only person that's ever been through this before. You know, we'll go to a restaurant, maybe you have a bad experience, you know, you gotta wait in a long line, it takes a long time to be seated, or you know, your, your order is wrong, you pay for something that you don't get, or it's cooked the wrong way, and, and then we voice our concerns. And, and, and you know, there's a couple different ways that the restaurant can react in that moment. You know, they can just react with, well, sorry, we're really busy, we're understaffed, there's nothing we can do about this, I'm sorry you're frustrated, but hey, actually, we just need your table, we got a long line of people, it's time for you to move on. So then kind of dismiss it and say, well, get over it, move on. Or, you know, the owner, the manager comes to your table and says, hey, listen, really sorry that this was your experience. What can I do to make this right? Or maybe they just go and take the initiative. They say, hey, listen, this is not the way we like to operate. This is not what we want to be known for. So we're going to pay for your meal. Or, or maybe go even further and say, we're not just going to pay for your meal. Here's a gift card because we value this relationship and we want you to come back again. again what Jesus is showing us is really more the second example you know, or an owner, or a restaurant manager, they might not be required to pay for your meal, but it's not so much of a, a conversation about what's required as much as it's a conversation about what's right. Do you value this relationship or not? And Jesus says, listen, be the type of people that do more than what's required of you. D don't just meet the bare minimum when it comes to reconciling relationships. Do everything you can to go above and beyond, to honor the person and to bring honor to the name of Jesus. Don't just fulfill the bare minimum obligation. Go above and beyond to make the situation right. Verse 41, Jesus gives another example here. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So the way we fight like Jesus after we do more than we're required is we go the extra mile. Walking the Jesus way means going the extra mile. The second example that Jesus gives is the example of being forced to travel a, a mile. Now, context uh, under Roman rule, the Jewish people were legally obligated to assist Roman soldiers in the transportation of their equipment. This was a humiliating and a degrading experience because it was a reminder to the people that they were under the oppression of a foreign enemy and that they couldn't do anything about it in return. So a soldier might have a heavy load that needed to be moved, and so uh, he would tell someone to come help him, and they had absolutely no choice. They couldn't give pushback. They couldn't argue. Uh, but there were also limits to this law. While they were required to assist, the law said they were only required to go one mile. You couldn't pull people away from their work all day long. Uh, that would have been too much. But if you were called upon, you were required to offer your services. Good example of this through the Gospels is Simon of Cyrene. Jesus is carrying his cross up to Golgotha. Uh, and what do the soldiers do? They, they call Simon out of the crowd. Simon has no choice in that moment, and he has to carry Jesus' cross beam up to Calvary Hill. And so this is the type of culture. Now understand the way the Roman soldiers would do this, that they did this to bully people. They did this to frustrate them. They did this to agitate them, just kind of to dare them to give them any sort of pushback. And it was just obnoxious the way they would do this. They might have something that they were perfectly capable of carrying on their own easily. And then they would call someone else. They would humiliate them in front of everyone and call them away from their work. And so, so just imagine this picture here for just a moment. You, you are working your tail off to provide for your family. You're, you're maybe in poverty, struggling to get by. You need your income every single day just so your family can eat and survive. And you're in the middle of a business transaction and a soldier calls you out of that and says, hey, you gotta come with me now. You gotta carry this. And they're doing it just to frustrate you. They're doing it just to annoy you. They're doing it just to agitate you and, and to try to elicit some sort of negative reaction from you. And you have no say in the matter whatsoever. You have no say in the matter. Maybe it causes you to lose money. Maybe it means your family's not gonna eat that day. 
So doing it just to pick on you and bully you, and Jesus says, hey, listen, don't just go the required one mile, go another. And so you imagine this picture that the soldiers know what this is, that they're trying to degrade, they're trying to humiliate, they're trying to frustrate you, and you go your mile, and they say, all right, you can get out of here, you fulfilled the requirement. And you say, you know what, man, I, I can't let you carry this by yourself. I, I can't let you take this whole burden all the way. Let let's, just, let's just go one more mile. And they look like, but you've already fulfilled the requirement. Like, and that, that's fine, that, that's fine. But I, I've, I've got time and, and this is heavy. I don't want you to have to go this on your own. Let me carry this burden for you another mile. And, and this is just puzzling to, to that soldier, right? Because they're picking on you and they're bullying you, but you're like Steve Rogers pre-Captain America, right? Like, like they're pushing you and you're like, hey, I can do this all day. I can do this all day. Like, like push me all that you want. You're not gonna frustrate me. It's not gonna get a response. I'm not gonna retaliate in return. And you get a quarter mile into that next mile and they say, why are you doing this? Why are you carrying this burden when you aren't required? And that's your moment to turn and look at them and say, because someone else carried a burden for me when he wasn't required. Let me tell you about the one who carried my burden of sin. Let me tell you about the one who loved me in spite of the fact that I was his enemy, in spite of the fact that I had turned against him and rejected him, who went the extra mile for me. So what Jesus is showing us is when we do these things, we're displaying him to the world. We're displaying the gospel. And this is a very, very difficult thing to do. It's not easy to put ourselves in these situations where we bring our emotions under the control of the Holy Spirit and we lay down our rights to retaliate. You know, I think one of my favorite examples of, of this through, the, the, through Scripture is the Apostle Paul, because th- this brother was just invincible, right? But we look at Paul's example. I mean, what's his testimony in Philippians 1.21? Hey, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is what we should all be striving for. The vision Christ had for his church was to be a people who could not be shaken. That's what he desired for us. And this was Paul. You, you could not threaten Paul with anything. Paul would preach the gospel and they'd be like, hey, Paul, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're gonna throw you in prison. And he'd be like, man, I've always wanted to do prison ministry. It sounds good. They'd throw the brother in jail and he'd preach and they'd start singing. They'd be like, you better shut it up. You better knock it off or we're gonna put you to death. And Paul's like, finally, I get to be with Jesus. Like, we're gonna throw you in jail, hey, to live as Christ. We're gonna put you to death, hey, to die is gain. The man was bulletproof. There was absolutely nothing you could threaten him with. So church, we've gotta understand This self-loathing, thin-skinned, easily offended Christianity, it is foreign to the pages of Scripture. God calls us to be people who cannot be threatened by anything in this world. We're numb when it comes to insult. We can turn the other cheek to these things. It's not that we're ignoring the real pain and the real suffering and the real trauma of the problems in our life. But church, what we remember is that no matter what we face, every hostility that's directed against us is serving to make us more like Jesus Christ. I mean, is this not exactly what we saw in the Beatitudes from the mouth of Jesus just several weeks ago from Matthew 5, 11? Jesus said, blessed are you. That this is what it means to be blessed. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you. I mean, they're just assassinating your character. When they revile you, they persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What's he say our response is supposed to be? Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the Jesus way. This is the Jesus way. Insult me once and I'll make myself vulnerable to insult again. 
You curse my name and I'm not gonna curse you back. I'm gonna bless you in return. You intimidate me with your power and your strength and I will calmly show you in response that I cannot be threatened. That's what it means to walk the way of Jesus. But again, I think because of our modern sensitivities and because of the the relative prosperity that we have enjoyed as Christians in the West, man, we have no context for this. And that's what many of us are going through today. Like we, we have no idea what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a world where it might actually cost us something. I mean, I mean let, let's just be totally honest about this church. I mean, let, let's forget conversations about, about showing up for worship, you know, where there's people outside the doors but with guns. Man, we struggle to show up if the weather's bad. Like, can we just be real about this? Like, like very few of us have any sort of context or understanding for what it means to truly suffer for Christ. And we need to see from the mouth of Jesus being slandered, being reviled, being persecuted. This is the normal experience for the follower of Christ. And it's what we should be expected to endure as we follow Jesus. And how we respond to the insults of others is one of the simplest tests for knowing whether or not we're truly following Christ. Do we retaliate or do we not? Jesus closes this passage, verse 42. One more mark. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So how do we fight like Jesus? We turn the other cheek. We do more than we're required. We go the extra mile. Fourth, Jesus shows us that we give to those in need. There's an important note here uh, that Jesus is clear about that we should uh, give to the one who begs. Now, that word beg is really, really important for us. First century Jewish culture, most people would have rather died than have to resort to begging. So if someone was willing to beg, it was because they had a legitimate serious need. Um, We we need the whole of scripture here, the wisdom of all of scripture, because the book of 1 Thessalonians in particular is abundantly clear that we should not give in such a way that empowers those who are lazy or those who refuse to work. And and so we, we exercise wisdom in our giving, but the note that this is a beggar, this shows that this is someone who, man, they have absolutely hit rock bottom that these are circumstances that they cannot control, they're doing everything that they possibly can, and they have resorted to the lowest of the low, which is being a beggar, so that they can simply have what they need in order to survive and get by. And Jesus says when this happens, we should be the type of people who are willing to help. You know, guys, here's, here's the reality. Even if somebody's story completely checks out and it seems completely legitimate, at the end of the day, and we've all probably experienced this, at the end of the day, you are still making yourself vulnerable to someone taking advantage of you. Man, I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, just serving in, in churches, you know, for the last 18 years, how, how many times somebody's come through our door with a really, really good story that seems so legitimate, and then you learn a couple months later, man, they were just taking us for a ride. Like, like you, you go through, you check it out, you listen to the story, you try to do as much research as you can. At the end of the day, we are still making ourselves vulnerable to those who would take advantage of us. But the old proverb remains true. If you really want to understand the condition of a person's heart, if you really want to understand their priorities and what they value, look at their calendar and look at their checkbook. And the way we approach money, our attitude about money, maybe more than anything else is evidence of whether or not we're walking along the Jesus way. Few things reveal whether or not we're walking the Jesus way more clearly than the ways we use our money because a greedy, stingy, tight-fisted hold on money is absolutely incompatible with the way of Christ. This is how John writes at 1 John three seventeen. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him. Listen to the question John asks. He asks, how does God's love abide in him? We close off our hearts to those in need. John John is saying, how can we say with any integrity whatsoever 
that the love of God abides in us. He gives this exhortation. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Gosh, it's so easy to have a selfish attitude when it comes to money, right? It's so easy to have a selfish attitude. Man, we work hard. We work long hours, but we work hard. And then, you know, the government's going to take their piece. It's so easy just to see it all as mine. This is my job, and it's, it's my money that I use to buy my car and to buy my house and to buy my clothes and to buy my food. It's just so easy just to have this vice grip on our material possessions and money. So easy to hold this. You know, you, you, just, you just couple this up against just the realities of everyday life. Like there's, there's a mortgage to pay and there's, there's utility bills to pay and there's hospital bills. And, and if you have kids, you're probably broke anyway, right? No matter how much you have, because they're expensive. And, and so we're just looking at like the realities of, of day-to-day life. Like, man, how can I just freely, open-handedly hold these things? And, and church, we, we so quickly forget that every good thing that we have has only been given to us because it was given to us by God. We're not owners of these things, we're stewards of these things. And how can we say with any integrity whatsoever that we believe in a God who gave everything to save us whenever we're not willing to give anything to meet the needs of others? Our willingness to give is maybe the clearest evidence of whether or not we're truly in Christ. It's one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, John 3, verse 16. It tells us, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. And what did he give us? He gave us his only begotten son. God could not have given us more than he gave us when he gave us Jesus. He could not have given us more than he gave us when he gave us Jesus. And yet he withheld nothing and gave us everything. So how can we with any integrity say that we believe in that God if we're not willing to give to meet the needs of others? So if you look at these first four tactics, look at these first four tactics, and we've got three more that we're going to see in the next sermon. If you look at these first four, turning the other cheek, doing more than you're required, going the extra mile, giving to those in need, what we're going to find is that all of these have something really big in common. All four of these tactics have something really big in common. And what they have in common is this. Every one of these requires in some way, shape, or form the laying down of our personal rights. And that's easier said than done, right? It requires the laying down of our personal rights. What are we doing when we turn the other cheek? I'm laying down the right to defend my reputation. By doing more than what's required of me, I'm laying down my rights to go above the bare minimum. By going the extra mile, I'm laying down my rights as a citizen to cite the limits of the law. By giving to those in need, I'm laying down my right to claim anything is my own. And all of these limits, all of these test our limits. All of these test the limits of our emotional and spiritual will. Every single one of these takes us right up to the edge of rage and anger and frustration and retaliation. And then it just interrogates us with the question, are you going to go the way of Jesus or are you going to go the way of the world? That this is the fork in the road in the Sermon on the Mount. When we get to this and what we see in the next section, this is the part of the sermon where a lot of professing followers of Jesus say, I can't go that way. Or we reveal with our actions, no matter what our words say, that we're not walking in that way. That this is the fork in the road of the Sermon on the Mount. What do we do? How do we respond? Do, do we retaliate whenever we have the opportunity to do this? And the reason it's so difficult is because it's at this moment that you and I are confronted with maybe the most difficult question that we're going to face as professing followers of Jesus. And here's the question every one of us has to be able to answer. 
How willing are you to be wronged for the name of Jesus Christ? How willing are you to be wronged for the name and the sake of Jesus Christ? When someone insults you, how willing are you to be wronged? When someone sues you, how willing are you to be wronged? When someone coerces you, how willing are you to be wronged? When someone manipulates you and takes advantage of your money, how willing are you to be wronged for the sake of Jesus? Are you willing to lay down your personal rights? Are you willing to resist retaliation and endure disrespect or inconvenience for the sake of the name of Jesus? One of my um, favorite stories, it's a little known story from the World War II era. And I'm going to ask this question. How how many of you, one person in the first service had heard of this before? So it really is, I'm weird with history. It's an obscure history fact, but uh, you guys know that I'm weird. So um, a little known story from World War II. How many of you have heard of the Minnesota starvation experience? Show of hands. One, you were in the first service, Kenny, so you don't count. Um, Who else? Okay, one, one other person in this room, see one of, so, so almost none of us have heard of this before. And this is a powerful, powerful story, little known story from World War II. As World War II was coming to a close, leaders were really struggling with how to reintroduce food to people who were starving. Very little was known about starvation and very little was known about how the human body responds uh, when, when you start to reintroduce food to the diet of a person who's been starving. So there were 36 men who were conscientious objectors to the war, but they still wanted to serve their country in some way. And so this is what they signed up for. They signed up for a months-long experiment where they would willingly subject themselves to semi-starvation and then willingly subject themselves to those who were helping them reintroduce food into their diet so they could understand the effects on the human body. And throughout this, that they were subjected to degrading and debilitating conditions. Um, they, they experienced a lot of the similar conditions that were experienced in the concentration camps. So uh, they would shower without privacy. They would use the bathroom without privacy. And so they were studying the effects of starvation and the psychological effects on the human body that they were experiencing so that they could fully understand how to best reintroduce food. And, and man, you, you asked the question, how on earth do you get somebody to sign up for that? Like anybody else volunteering on that serve team at church? Like we do potluck here in the South. Like sign me up for that all day long. Like, like what if instead of potluck, we were like, hey, we're gonna come together and just not eat for like two weeks. Who's in? Like we're not, so, so how do you get people to sign up for something like this and to volunteer for something like this? This is how this initiative was advertised to the 36 men who said yes. This was the headline of the brochure. Will you starve that they be better fed? Will you starve that they be better fed? Will you lay down your right and your freedom and your privilege to eat? Will you willingly subject yourself to to debilitating and degrading conditions and pain for the sake of someone else? And so I just ask the question again to us today, what rights are we willing to surrender so that others could be fed with Jesus Christ? Are you willing to starve yourself of retaliation so that others might find redemption in Jesus? And again, friends, listen, I'm preaching at me as much as anybody else in this room today. This is much easier said than done, right? This is much easier said than done to stay silent when someone insults you or humiliates you. To respond with grace when someone takes legal action against you. To go above and beyond what someone demands of you to give to those who might take advantage of you. But we do these things because the gospel says this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. 
This is exactly what he's done for us. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, 21. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. And what did he do? Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And what is the example that we're called to follow? What does it look like? What's it mean to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to walk the Jesus way? This is the example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Church, this is the fork in the road on the Jesus way. It's gonna be this section and the next that that a couple of things are gonna be realized. We're gonna be able to see, am I truly in Jesus Christ? Is this the natural overflow of my heart? Is this how I respond? Or do I always give in to retaliation? Or it may be the place that we just say, hey, I can't do this. And guys, here's the reality. What Jesus is calling us to do here, it's not hard, it's not difficult. Apart from him, it's impossible. That's why you gotta repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. You have to turn to Jesus Christ. You can't do this with your heart. You need a new heart. This goes against your desires, so you need new desires, and that's something that we can only find by wholeheartedly surrendering ourselves to Jesus. This is the fork in the road on the Jesus way. Are you willing to be wronged for the sake of Christ? Here's what he's calling us to do today. What Jesus calls us to do in these verses today is simple, is to lay down our rights and to pick up our cross. We lay down our rights and we pick up our cross and we refuse to retaliate. And as we starve ourselves of retaliation, we do it with the hope that someone else finds redemption. That's the way that we walk as followers of Jesus because that's the way that Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy has walked for us. Will you bow your heads with me as we close this morning? Father, we are so grateful for the example of your son, Jesus, who did what we could never do by ourselves. God, we thank you that he did turn the other cheek. We thank you that he did not speak back out in sin when others reviled him and slandered him and sinned against him. We thank you that he perfectly accomplished for us what we could never hope to do ourselves. And so, Father, I ask that today you would bring us to a place of surrender. Father, for the person in this room who is still trying to white-knuckle this and who thinks that they can just follow you in their own strength and ability, would they open up their hands to you today and renounce their ability? All of this is impossible apart from you. So we need you. We need the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We need new hearts that desire to walk in obedience to your word. We need new desires that want your word. We can't do this apart from you. So thank you that Jesus has already walked this way. By his power and the presence of his Holy Spirit, help us to walk the same. So you can keep your heads bowed here for just a moment as we close um, and prepare our hearts to come to the table for communion. I just wanna ask you this morning, What's your relationship with retaliation right now? 
Is your identity secured in Jesus Christ so that when someone does sin against you, have you entrusted yourself to the just judge so that you can be silent in that moment and trust that justice and vengeance belong to the Lord? And and listen again, I don't wanna be insensitive to the reality of pain and relational heartbreak and the troubles that are there. But as followers of Jesus, we're reminded that these things are what are making us more like him, even the worst of what we experience. Someone probably really has hurt you, probably really has sinned against you, probably really has slandered you, disrespected you, gossiped against you. The question we have to ask ourselves is how are we gonna respond? We're gonna go the way of the world or we're gonna go the way of Jesus? So today, maybe what you need to do is just come to the Lord in repentance and recognize I have chosen retaliation in a sinful way rather than trusting vengeance and judgment to the Lord. And you just need to surrender a situation to him. Something someone said about you, a way a person has treated you, and you just just need to today give that over to Jesus Christ and trust that it's in his hands. And as crazy as it sounds, what we'll see in the next section is even asking the Lord for a heart that would forgive them and pray for them. What you're seeing, maybe you're seeing today, the impossibility of doing this on your own and you're recognizing your need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You're seeing your need to repent of your sins, to surrender to Jesus as the Lord of your life, to trust that all vengeance and judgment is in his hands taking it out of yours. So Father, we come to you with humble hearts. Father, I I feel this as much as any person in this room, Lord, that the sinful tendency to defend our names, to fight back, to get even, God, would you break all of that in our hearts this morning? we would entrust ourselves to you, that we would root our identity in you and we would find our confidence in you and respond not by retaliating, but with grace so that others might see you. So Father, as we come to this table this morning, as we remember the broken body and shed blood of your son, Jesus, the one who gave us everything, the one who endured Father, help us to see Jesus to walk in his example so that others might see you and know you. So you be glorified in the praises of your people as we pray, as we confess, as we repent, as we sing, as we rejoice. Lord, let it all be an act of worship before you this morning. Be honored in the praises of your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.